1: Go to trustarkcom slash anonymity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy. Here are your hosts,
2: Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal.
1: On 27 April 2023, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee signed the My Health, My Data Act into law. This law, which has been adopted with lightning speed, will enter into force in less than a year. On the 31st of March 2024, Leaving companies very little time to prepare. Our guest today has discussed this law a lot in recent weeks, including with Kay and myself, while we were in Washington, D.C. for the Global Privacy Summit. So this week, you'll hear from Mike Hinsey, member partner at Hinsey Law pllc, senior fellow at the Future of Privacy Forum, and affiliate instructor at the University of Washington School of Law. Despite the short time this law has been in preparation, Mike has written extensively about the consequences of the My Health, My Data Act, and the unforeseen impact it may have. You'll hear a lot about his concerns today as well. My name is Paul Breitbart.
0: And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So, Mike, we are absolutely thrilled to have you join us. It was just luck, fate, whatever you have it, that we bumped into you and you gave us your thoughts on the new Washington My Health, My Data Law and I think it's perfect timing to have it. But that being said, are you ready for the unexpected question?
2: Can you be ready for the unexpected question? You (laughs) can't.
0: (laughs) I really, really can't. But let's go with something relatively simple. What was your first car?
2: My car was a 1979 Ford Mustang.
0: Ooh, what color?
2: Blue. And it was an awful car. I, I bought it with 130,000 miles on it, and uh, it it showed.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Did you get it as a teenager? I did.
2: I was
1: 18 when I got
0: it. Oh, that's a wonderful car for a teenager. Paul, you?
1: I never owned a car.
0: Oh, is that not a thing in Europe, just to not have cars?
1: It's less of a a thing. Uh, In any case, we can't get our driver's license until we're 17, 18, so it's not that we use a car to go to school. As you see in all the U.S. high school series, at least. So I've never done that, um, but and then I was a student, so I couldn't afford a car, uh, and I usually when I went home to my parents, I could drive theirs, uh, so that that was for me the, the the easy way. So the first one from my parents that I drove was a Citroen C5, and then a Volvo, and now an Audi. Uh, we share. I still share a car with my parents or with my, with my mom right now because we both live in the same city. We don't need a car full time. I commute to work by public transport, so uh, it's the easier and more environmentally friendly option.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Okay, so the first thought that came to mind is: Are you telling me then in Europe you can drink before you can drive?
1: Yes. Well. In most countries, you can. By now, it's more or less the same age. Because when I was young, in the Netherlands, you could drink at 16 and you could drive at 18. Right now, it's both at 18, although there are ways where you can start your driving lessons at 17.
0: Here, average, I think you could start your, oh, what do they call it, before you have your license, when you have a permit to drive. Used to be, I think, in my state, you could start at 14 and get your license at 15. So pretty young. And then they moved the drinking age to 21. But uh, wow. Okay. My first car is one that I, about every other year, I go online to see if I can find one. It was a 1976 Dodge Gold Duster, special edition. It had a snakeskin print roof. And I think the engine was a two... 34 slant 6 or something. I'm not really an engine person, but it was a slant 6, which meant all of the the valves were on one side rather than three on one and three on the other. But uh, really, really cool car. And I didn't know at the time that it was, but I was working with a friend of mine to soup up the engine for, you know, street drag racing. And my mother thought that because I wasn't driving it, I didn't want it. And so she sold it since I couldn't technically own it because I was 16. I guess it. Was, I was 17 when she sold it because I had started college. Came home and my car wasn't there anymore.
1: Oh, poor you.
0: Yeah, and I paid for everything. And you couldn't
1: car. even get a drink to compensate.
0: And I couldn't get a drink to compensate. She replaced it with a red vet, but it was a Chevette, not a Corvette, and I did not feel that that was an equal trade whatsoever.
1: Well, at least it was
2: red. Now now we all have to go through and scrub our secret question and answers to make sure that we don't say, what's your first car? Because that information's not
1: public. Uh, uh, uh,
0: that is true. And I do use that one. But yeah, you know, okay, you're fine. I'll, I'll have to take... So a- Mike is the first question. one
1: to actually realize that all of your secret questions are actually intended to get people to give their secret password questions.
2: But so this is your phishing podcast.
1: Of course it is. Uh, <laughs> So, Mike, we are here not to talk about cars, not to talk about food, but actually to talk about privacy. Uh, and indeed, as Kay explained, when we were in Washington, D.C. for IAPP, uh, you were, can I call it ranting about the Washington My Health, My Data Act? At least you were not so happy with it. But before we start with the why on that, What is the
2: Washington, My Health, My Data Act? The Washington, My Health, My Data Act is a a bill that has now passed both houses of the Washington state legislature and is now on the desk of the governor for signature, and it's expected to be signed, so when will it become law? It purportedly is focused on filling gaps left by the federal HIPAA law. The HIPAA law in the United States is the law that covers at the federal level what are called covered entities. And those are hospitals and clinics and doctors' offices and pharmacies and, and, and medical insurance providers. And so the health data that those entities cover is protected at the federal level under this federal law that's been around for many years. Uh, In, in past years, there have been concerns raised that there's an awful lot of health data being processed outside the scope of HIPAA by, by fitness tracking apps and, and other scenarios. And this is purportedly focused on filling those gaps. Also in light of the Dobbs decision by the US Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade and the threats to health care, reproductive health care, sexual health care, threats to gender affirming care. There's been a concern about protecting the data of people seeking those types of health care as well. And and so uh, there's been a lot of support for it. there's been a lot of momentum behind it because of those very important objectives that are are behind it. The problem with this bill, and I, I look at this from a perspective of now, what are companies that are going to try to comply with this bill now that it will become law, what are going to be the challenges? And, and there are a, a number of challenges with this bill. Uh, one is that it does much more than filling those gaps that I mentioned. It is drafted incredibly broadly. The definition of consumer health data has generated a lot of attention uh, and a lot of focus because it potentially covers a, a lot of data, possibly you know almost any type of personal data. And the reason for that is the way it's drafted. Uh, the definition of consumer health care. It includes a, a lot of categories, a lot of examples of things that are in a not exclusive list of things that are in, including efforts to
1: mm-hmm.
2: obtain healthcare services. And health care services is another defined term that is also very, very broad. That means anything where a person is seeking to improve uh, or learn about their health. So you can imagine a grocery store providing nutrition tips. Uh, has been pres- uh, is presumably going in there making purchase there couldn't be considered a health care service. A retailer selling exercise clothes or, or running shoes uh, could be providing a health care service. Almost any product is potentially revealing of a health status. And they also talk about inferences and derived data, data that can serve as a proxy or other data. So anything that could be used to infer a health status is potentially. And you can imagine when you take that and combined with a private right of action, where the incentive for playoffs lawyers are to argue that, you know, you buying, you know, Ben and Jerry ice cream and light bulbs indicates insomnia. And therefore it should be true that information about those purchases shouldn't should be treated as healthcare data. You know the the risk that companies have of underclassifying and focusing on data that truly we would all think of as healthcare data uh, potentially puts them at a lot of risk because others could make arguments that that is a much broader
1: definition. So basically, you're saying that that everything that I purchase could somehow be related to to health data if you if you want to. I mean, I can understand that if I. For example, go to to a pharmacist and buy condoms. But if I buy rice and vegetables, that for me would not be it, it, health data. But somebody could infer that I'm living healthy. So yeah. by that, by doing that, yeah, could I, mean, argue I would. It's health data.
2: You know, my intuition is that's not health data either. Uh, but you have these financial incentives by via this private right of action, where plaintiffs' lawyers are incentivized to be creative here. Right, They're incentivized to find instances where something could be classified as health data, where they can make a credible claim that it reveals something about somebody's health status. And it might not be one purchase, it might be a series of purchases where, uh, you know, there's that old target example from over 10 years ago now, where, um, you know, unscented lotions and vitamins and large handbags, you know, fed into the algorithm and created a, a likelihood of pregnancy, right? And so you think, you think about those kinds of purchases and, you know, it's not going to be intuitive. It's not going to be obvious. So a retailer looking at this saying, well, do I think of this purchase data as in or outside the scope of that law? That's a hard decision to make uh, because, you know, company or plaintiff's lawyers will make the arguments that, oh, well, that purchase Plus, this other purchase reveals X, right?
0: And we all know now with the profiles that are quite prevalent on everyone that the idea that this is not going to feed into a profile or it's not going to be an indicator of something related to health is pretty far flung.
2: Yeah, or at least potentially, right? And it's that potential that is the, the difficult thing from a company's perspective, trying to put in place compliance measures around this. So either you under scope by, you know, saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to scope this to things that are, you know, obviously health related or obviously real health status, or I'm going to throw it wide open and just be safe and, and, and apply it to everything. The problem is applying it to everything. Yes. sensitive standards under right. this law are so extreme that it would be very difficult and very costly to do that. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. The the consent requirements under this law, uh, it applied there. There's several different consent requirements under this law, but the baseline is that it requires GDPR level consent, right? So specific, unambiguous. You know, okay. I can't be bundled. Um, You know, it has to be an affirmative act. Consent is required for virtually any processing beyond what is necessary to provide the consumer requested product or service. And, you know, necessary isn't defined. So it doesn't say strictly necessary. So, you know, is there some little room there that, you know, is reasonably related, close enough, or do they truly mean necessary? If they truly mean necessary, and again, the plaintiff's lawyer will certainly argue that, right? If they truly mean necessary, that means for common, benign, expected operational purposes of data that are not strictly necessary to provide a service or fulfill a transaction might require this high level of opt-in consent, specific opt-in consent, not bundled, or every separate purpose might need a separate consent. Uh, there's a second provision that says anything Related to sharing data requires a a, a separate consent, So you're arguably already required because of the specific requirement of the definition of consent. But that that requires a separate consent, and then anything that would require that would that would become that would be considered a sale of data. And they use the California Consumer Privacy Act definition of sale of data for monetary or any valuable consideration, and that phrase valuable consideration in California has been interpreted very broadly to include a wide variety of of, of scenarios, including third-party targeted advertising. Uh, And so the level of consent for anything that would require a sale, unlike CCPA, where that's an opt-out, this is not only an opt-in, but it's an opt-in kind of on steroids. It requires what they call an authorization, which is... Wow, a written document that needs to be signed by the consumer. The document, the standard sheet specifies a number of things that must be in the document, a number of specific disclosures. Uh, It has to include the specific consumer health data that is being sold. It has to have the name and contact information of both the seller and the buyer, and both the seller and the buyer need to retain this signed document for six years. And the document itself expires after only one year. So the, the authorization is only good for one. So it's an even, it's, it's, you know, an extreme level of opt-in.
1: That doesn't sound logical.
2: so odorous that I think few companies would ever do it. And, and let me go to another substantive requirement under this statute that when tied together with this first one, that authorization for sale, I think it's a prohibition. It's so odorous because... So this, this would essentially be a prohibition on data sales, which could include online advertising, which could, given the definition of consumer health data, cover just about any kind of personal data. So this may be a targeted advertising. And let, let me, me, let me, let me, let me go one step further and tell you another reason why I think that's the case. The obligations under this act include data such as rights, as in may, most privacy laws do these days a right to access, a right to delete. The right to delete, unlike virtually every other privacy law, has almost no exceptions. There is a limit exception for security related purposes, but there is not an exception for compliance with law. So when you have a data retention obligation, and somebody comes and asks you to delete that data, there is no exception. You have to delete the data. So you need to choose which law you violate. And not only that, within this law itself, remember I told you about that authorization requirement, it is a written document that needs to contain the consumer health data being sold. So this document will contain consumer health data and you need to retain it for six years.
1: But you also need to delete it as soon as somebody All you need,
2: All a plaintiff's lawyer needs to do is find a company that is, that is offering this authorization, grant that authorization, wait a few days, and then ask for deleted, to be deleted, and see which part of the law they violate, the obligation to retain the authorization, or the obligation to delete the data. So it's a litigation trap,
1: right?
2: And so I...
1: So how could this ever have passed the legislature? When, when Washington has been so reluctant to adopt an omnibus privacy bill, I think we've seen three or four iterations in the past yeah. couple of years, and now this one yeah. goes through in one year Well, with faulty, yeah, with the, faulty the, provisions. The
2: omnibus privacy bill didn't pass the Senate unanimously several years in a row. It got hung up on the House side because House leadership very much wanted a private right of action in it. And the Senate burst did not have a private right of action. It would have been forced solely by the Attorney General. Uh, This one does have a private right of action. So it overcame that objection on the House side from the House leadership. Uh, And I think the fact that this has also been, you know, so closely tied to the specific concerns around health data that it got more momentum than an omnibus privacy law did. Now, of course, as as I talked about, I think this is much broader than... Something that's specifically o- focused on health data, or at least the impact is, is potentially very much broader. But I think those factors combine to give this one, just that extra momentum to get over that hurdle that the other omnibus privacy bill that, that had been proposed several years in a row, never got over.
1: So how are, go ahead.
0: Well, and as we've said, se- well, go ahead. Uh, well, okay. As we've said as uh, times. It seems like laws only really get passed when the regulators have something that really motivates them to do so, especially if it's some sort of controversial law. So I guess the My Health, My Data Act passed because they had very strong motivations to make sure things didn't happen in Washington, that they're happening. Let's be honest, Texas restricted internet service providers and apps from doing certain things, even collecting information in Texas criminal penalties, things like that, maybe not necessarily in the same bill. So Washington was motivated to pass something that would make sure that the same thing couldn't happen in Washington. So it seems almost like a knee jerk reaction. I mean, is that true or you know, is that just sure what I it seems necessarily like?
2: necessarily characterize it like that. I think uh, I, I think, you know, Washington is a very progressive state. I think I think there's a trend that we're starting to see where Privacy law is being tied to other objectives, right? And in progressive states, that might be reproductive rights. Yeah. In conservative states, that might be parental rights, where we saw that law in Utah passed recently that gives you know parents mm-hmm. uh, you know very right. high levels of oversight and control over child- or teenagers' use of social media and, and other online services. So, you know, I think I think we're seeing these you know, I, I hate to use the word culture war, but it's certain those issues that there's a lot of passion about where the country is very divided. When privacy law is getting tied to those other agendas,
0: yeah,
2: it creates momentum that I think results in bad privacy law. Because privacy law is very nuanced and, and there's a, a, a lot of yeah. epic ways things have been worked out. And, you know, we've got got history of privacy law, and you know what's worked and what hasn't, and a lot of that nuance and that subtlety and that experience gets lost when other agendas or other motivations are uh, motivating the the act of privacy law.
1: So, how do we get rid of these shoddy provisions? Is there a possibility to to ask for some form of of constitutional review or? Can a, a judge say, well, these provisions are just not applicable because they are contradictory? Is there is there any way to basically make sure that the law actually is not contradictory? Um,
2: th- I mean, there's a couple of paths. If, if if it's truly leads to an absurd result, and there's a couple of things that we, we haven't talked about yet that, that do that in addition to what we have talked about.
1: Oh, it gets Right. <laughs>
2: Yeah, there's there's more. <laughs> I I will, but let me answer you. Tell, tell me more. Tell me the the, the- for, So there there could be a couple of paths for getting this fixed. Why would be another piece of legislation that would be sort of a cleanup bill. The challenge is is that Washington State has a part-time mm-hmm. legislature. We are two days from the closing of this year's session, and and so there's just not time
1: for okay. all of 2023.
2: Uh, and so there is just not time to fix this. The next session will open in January of 2024. So that would be the next opportunity to do a legislative fix. Uh, short of that, and one of the other problems with this bill that we'll talk about in a minute uh, makes that timing particularly troublesome. Uh, short of that, the courts will sort it out. There's a lot of things here that are ambiguous, subject to different interpretations. There are things that I would characterize as drafting errors that create some either nonsensical or contradictory results. And, you know, the courts could say, well, that was clearly not the legislative intent. Uh, You know, I'm going to rule that this, you know, this doesn't actually mean that. It means something else. But, you know, getting to that point will be costly. That's That's expensive litigation for a company to defend themselves against claims from plaintiff's lawyers who will, exploit these uh, problems and ambiguities in the law uh, and you know some company may not have the appetite or the budget to fight that and may just go for the quick quicksale uh, so that's that's sort of the two paths by which some of these things could be quote fakes so yeah ne- neither are, are particularly promising at the moment
1: hmm.
0: was there a lot of debate on this one from consumers or interested parties as it was gone. going through the process?
2: It didn't go very quickly. There it were, seemed to go pretty quickly from what I could tell. And, uh, you know, advocacy groups uh, were supporting uh, you know reproductive rights or or pr- consumer privacy generally were supportive mm-hmm. of it. Um, the sponsors, the state attorney general's office were supportive of this behind it. Uh, the opposition... Came mostly in the form of industry groups. You, uh, if any companies wanted to stand up individually okay. and oppose what was being put forward for, you know, positive and important global reasons, and they didn't want
0: to. Right. So any of ob- any objection to it by a corporation or a company exactly, would have exactly. seemed like so they didn't support of the of underlying groups, intent. You
2: know, trying very much to say we're not opposed yeah. to the. You know, the the objectives here, there are real problems with how it's been drafted and what that will mean for companies that will, you know, certainly make good faith efforts to comply with its provisions.
0: Right. So, OK, tell us about the more troublesome parts of it.
2: So, <laughs> you know, I, compared to some of the other things, this, I mean, we, we talked about the consign issues, we talked about the deletion challenges uh, with the, the lack of exceptions. There's a notice provision in there that seems to require that, that requires a honored health data privacy policy, which seems to be a separate document from the company's general privacy policy. And there's other privacy laws that require you to have sort of the general privacy policy with a long list of things that need to be in a notice. This seems to require a separate document that has, you know, a lot of the same things. That would be in the genital privacy policy, just specific consumer health data. But as I said, consumer health data is potentially almost anything. Uh, and so it looks like companies may have to have a separate document that is redundant of their general privacy policy with a separate link in the flare So that's, you know, that's worrying. That's make sure your, your homepage more cluttered with, you know, the, ever-expanding number of privacy links you need to have between California and now Washington and, you know, everybody else. Right. Um, there's another provision in there, whether well, there's a series of provisions. Under Washington state law, if a piece of legislation does not have a specified effective date, it comes into effect 90 days after the close of the session. As I mentioned, the close of the session is in two days so that would mean July of this okay. year late July of this year <laughs>
1: The
2: first You're going to tell us not, this did not have an effect. date uh, that added an effective date but the way it added the effective dates was problematic they did it on a section by section basis not every section at ad- oh. not every section added an effective date so there's Seriously? a prohibition of certain geofencing provisions around physical facilities that provide health care services. We can talk about that later if you want. Uh, that does not have an effective date specified. So that will come into effect in late July this year. So in, in just a few months, other sections, other substantive requirements, the way they added the effective date is problematic because each one of those sections has some sections and each subsection sets out a separate requirement under that section. The way they added the effective date was part of the first subsection and part of a complete sentence that lays out the requirement of that first section. So it says, in effect, starting on March 31st, 2024, which is the effective date that's specified, so pushes it out here, uh, you know, a regulated entity shall, and then it lays out the requirement, and then there's a period. And then it jumps to the next section and the next section is silent on the effective date. So some have argued that that effective date should be read as applied to the entire section. My argument is that is far from clear because that's not how the English language works. You have a, you have have a specific requirement. Yeah. That's not how the law works with a period at the end. And as part of that sentence. You say starting March, 2020, March 31st, 2020. And then you jump to a separate subsection, a separate sentence that is silent on effective dates. My concern is that a plaintiff's lawyer will argue that
0: that second section and
2: every subsequent subsection under that does not have an effective date and therefore will come into effect in late July, 2023. And if I were a plaintiff's lawyer, I would be hoping to catch companies off guard because the the general idea out there is this thing doesn't come into effect until March of next year. If I were the plaintiffs' lawyer, I'd file in cases in late July.
1: Well, companies should consider themselves warned right now because you told them.
2: I am trying to warn as many people as I can about this because I think it's a real concern, and I don't think you know. I, I, the plaintiffs' lawyers would not have missed this, Uh, and so I think I think it's important to. Kind of shout from no, the rooftops, no. hey, if you think you have to March 2020 or think again, you need to look section by section and think about which provisions may very well come into effect in, in just a few months and, and what, what kind of, you know, risk mitigation right. strategies can we put in place to address that possibility?
1: This sounds very much like China or Vietnam. Right. And with
0: the-
2: that contrary to the legislative intent. And there's actually some language. There's actually some language. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I, I think different people can look at this differently, but I think there is at least a significant risk that that plain, you know, that plain reading that's the that has an effect debate for one sentence and then subsequent sentence, subsequent subsections are silent about it. I think there's a real risk that a judge would find that 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 means that, you know, by default, those other subsections come into effect in 90 days. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that was a drafting error. Crazy I, stuff. I actually think we, I know, it, my, my understanding is that it was intentional on the, on the subsection, on the, sorry, it was intentional on the section around geo fencing where that entire section is silent on an effective date. My understanding that was, that part was intentional. The rest of right. them where it was, done just in that first sentence of the subsection, I think that was a drafting oversight. Uh, and I don't think that was intentional. I think that was contrary to the legislative intent. Uh, and, you know, folks can argue that at court, but, you know, we were arguing against what the statute actually says. So,
1: so is this it or is there more?
2: Uh, I, I mean, got a feeling there there's more. Other, uh, there's, there's a few other Issues. Uh, one thing that is interesting that also expands the effect or the the reach of this is that it applies to consumer health data, which I've already, you know, described as being potentially very very broad in terms of data types. It's also very very broad in terms of data subjects. Because consumer health data is health data related to consumers. And consumers is a defined term under the statute. Consumers is defined as, and I'm paraphrasing it on the language right in front of me, as a resident of Washington state. All right, that makes sense, right? Or somebody whose health, mm-hmm. consumer health data is collected in Washington state. All right, that makes sense. Somebody travels to Washington state to receive healthcare services and their data is collected in Washington state. They're, they're protected by that. Fair enough. The problem is, is that the term collected is also a defined term. And the term collected is defined to include the term process.
1: Yeah.
2: I'm just going to pause and let that sink in for a second. Ooh. and process means it exactly what process means Ooh. under the so, GDPR.
0: Wow. Any operation
2: on data. Any side chart rated.
1: Yeah. A Texas company with servers in Washington state exactly. would be covered.
2: Exactly. By so if data ever touches Washington state, even if the consumer never entered Washington state, has no connection to Washington state, that consumer's health data would be covered by this act. And where are some of the largest cloud service providers headquartered? Washington State.
1: In Washington State. So So say I'm using Microsoft Office and I'm not aware of server locations. I'm typing something medical here in Europe. Could that already trigger in theory the application of the, in theory, My, the yes. My data X?
2: Now, you know, the, uh, some uh, of the larger cloud service suppliers
1: There is no threshold in this law about the number of consumers that need to be impacted as we see in so many of the. No, there is fields. not
2: um, one consumer could be enough to trigger it. There is a provision around small businesses, but that's defined based on revenue numbers of the business. Uh, and the only difference for small businesses is that they have a later effective
1: date. Yeah. Yeah,
0: you know, ninety days deferral, right?
1: Yeah. So yeah, that just pushes yeah. it over the so uh, over the summer to October. That-
2: this law that covers a wide swath of of of, of that has impact well beyond Washington geographically, Washington State. You know, it, it, the 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 impact of this, I think, is very significant. Which is why I've called this, you know, perhaps the most consequential privacy law since the original CCPA was adopted in 2018.
1: Well, let's tell our listeners consider yourself warned uh, and start looking at this in more right. detail because until we see some legislation, it might very well be that you could be the subject of this litigation that that Mike has been foretelling. I would be scared of this, especially if I'm a US company, but even from from the European perspective, I'm starting to get a little scared. Uh, and and probably will need to start doing some double-checking and telling people to start double-checking whether they have any relations with Washington State.
0: Yeah, because there cannot be a amendment to the bill until next year, as y'all heard Mike explain. Washington's one of those So that states. very happy
1: note, we'll wrap up another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like these episodes, please like us in your favorite podcast app, leave a review. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, especially on this topic, find us on LinkedIn under Serious Privacy. You will find Kay on Twitter and other social media as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol V. Until next week, goodbye.
0: Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy.
1: Hey, listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further.
0: Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI.
1: TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost effectively.
0: And here's the kicker protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy driven compliance software.
1: Because they're Deep Automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting.
0: Trustarcs enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security.
1: Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST-AI, OECD-AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework.
0: If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts.